The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed with host and author of the award-winning book of the same name, Lisa Lutan. Lisa has amazing tips to help you slow down, get healthy, manage your time, improve your relationships, and deal with stress. Now, here is Lisa Lutan. Hey guys, it's Lisa. Welcome to my show where I get to introduce you to my favorite health and wellness rock stars. I often tell my coaching clients that if there was one thing they could do to change their health and upgrade their life, it would be to start a breathing or meditation practice. And I always hear, my brain is way too busy to meditate. That's like saying, I'm not flexible enough to do yoga. Well, my friends, meditation helps you teach your brain to slow down and yoga can help make you more flexible. So what are you waiting for? I have two amazing guests today to talk about these very topics. My first guest is Seth Monk. Seth is a Boston native who, after spending eight years as a Buddhist monk, traveled the world to learn and refine his understanding of meditation and mindfulness. He currently teaches meditation in schools to both students and faculty, and we are so lucky to have him here with us today. Seth, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much. Seth, I start every guest with Lisa's five Ask Every Guest questions. So here we go. What did you have for breakfast today? Oh, boy. Um, I had some sprouts this morning. Yum. Yes. How do you spend the first hour of your day? Um, depending on the time of year, I think in the winter, I spend the first hour wishing I could be back in bed under the covers. <laughs> um, and I think as the weather changes and it becomes nicer out, I try to spend the first part of my day getting in some sunshine, maybe walking outside barefoot, really kind of waking up together with the morning. Beautiful. What do you do for fun? Um, I really enjoy also being outside in nature. I love hiking. I love going up mountains. Uh, I think swimming underwater is probably my favorite thing in the world to do. So, um, yeah, really just try to deeply contact nature. It really fills me with, with joy. Yeah. What is the one thing you do every day that has a huge impact on your life? Um, probably breathing. Um, without it, I think I would die. <laughs> yeah. And who <laughs> inspires you? Um, I'm really inspired by by everybody that's out there that's making a difference. Um, teachers, I think, doctors. Um, really, everybody that, that kind of has dedicated their life to helping others, to making this world a better place, that really inspires me in my life. So, yeah. Beautiful. So, Seth, you have a fascinating story. I, I'd love to hear your journey about how you became a Buddhist monk and why sure. you stopped being a Buddhist monk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I can kind of trace my story back to the beginning of my life. Um, just growing up as a child, really feeling that there was more going on in the world than, than we were being shown, than we were being taught in school. 
um, than even my parents knew. I remember when I was a, a little kid, I used to be able to see things. I'd see sometimes presences in the room or even see kind of colors or things that could be described like energy. And I'd say it to my mom and she would just say, oh, I, you know, maybe this is because you were born prematurely and, and your eyes don't work. So, um, so I could kind of connect to things that the people around me couldn't. And I kind of started searching for answers as I got older. And I first went actually to physics, thinking that maybe I could find the answers there. And then I kind of decided to start turning more inwards, and I started then focusing on art. And then eventually I encountered a Buddhist monk. He came to my university. And um, yeah, he gave a talk, and I really liked everything he said. And something in my heart kind of started to activate. And it was almost this feeling... It's a little cliche, but it's that feeling of coming home. It was really this feeling that, oh, okay, this is what I'd been looking for my whole life. Um, it was spirituality. It was really these these direct teachings about, yeah, that there's something bigger out there, that there's really more to connect to. And so when I graduated from college, I decided to go visit this monk who had given the talk at our school. And uh, he was the abbot of a monastery in Germany. So I flew over there. I thought I was going to be there for three months. Um, but actually, the longer that I was there, the more it felt like this was an important place to be. It really felt that um, kind of the analogy that I'd made for myself, it's, it's as if I was wearing, um, you know, glasses that were tinted a certain color, a red color. So everywhere I looked, I was seeing red. And I felt that in this monastery is this place where I was slowly able to take the color off and I was slowly being able to see more clearly. So I really had this moment where I said, you know, anywhere in the world that I go, I'm still going to be seeing things in the same kind of tainted way. It makes more sense to stay in one place and really develop and work on myself and kind of clear all that stuff out to be able to live in the world more freely. Um, and so what originally I thought was going to be three months ended up actually being eight years. And so I stayed in this monastery that whole time and I mean, that was just a whole nother lifetime. There's so much I could tell about that time. Um, Wait, but in, so question. Yeah, Before sure. you went off to Germany, mm -hmm. had you started your meditation practice or was that your first taste of it? Um, so this monk that visited our school, um, he instructed me on meditation and he said every Wednesday night I should meditate for, I think he said 10 or 15 minutes. So I made this a point every Wednesday night to sit, um, you know, just for these couple minutes. And it really felt like it started to support me. I really felt um, it started to shift my life in some way. I felt more grounded. It gave me almost like an anchor point. And um, just these little drops slowly influenced my life. And I think even during the time I was in school, um, you know, aside from the Wednesday night, sometimes I would just be out in nature, I'd be sitting on the step somewhere, and I would kind of just drop into my breath into this relaxation. So I think that I was gradually building up something that I guess now I would call a meditation practice before the monastery, but I wasn't even so aware of it at that time. It was just kind of something that was happening peripherally, um, but it was still kind of influencing my life. And I think when I went to the monastery, I began focusing on that more. And then it really became, um, yeah, something that I was mindful of, something that really I was aware of in a more full way. What is life like in the day in the life of a monk? Can you tell us what it's like? Sure. So every monk in every monastery probably lives their life differently. 
Um, so the way that our monastery was run, it began at um, about 5.30 in the morning. We would have our morning chanting and meditation. So we would all kind of walk down um, wearing our ceremonial robes and sit in the meditation hall. And we would do some chanting in Vietnamese and some chanting in Pali, which is a, an ancient language like Sanskrit. And then we would have a meditation. Um, so this lasted about an hour. And then we had a little time before breakfast to, you know, go and shower or go for a walk outside or do whatever you wanted to do. Um, we had a communal breakfast, so all of our meals were communal. And then um, at this monastery that I was at in Germany, then during the day we actually worked. So we helped to support the monastery. We had a, a Chinese medicine clinic, so I helped give massage and do acupuncture. Um, and then things like cleaning, things like cooking, gardening. Um, and then a lot of organizing, organizing retreats and different teachings. We had a lot of events that supported the community. Um, so there was many aspects of it that kind of felt like a normal working environment. And our teacher was also really adamant that he didn't want the spiritual life to be too far removed from what everybody else was going through outside of the monastery. So this would also allow our teachings to remain relevant and for us to really keep a connection to the community. Um, so we had a communal lunch and dinner, and then at night we also had a meditation for about an hour. And then on the weekends there would be different retreats um, and workshops and classes. And within that framework, I also personally had the time to do a few retreats. So I did one three-month silent retreat, um, which was really an intense time for me to connect Three back months? to myself. Three months silent, yeah. Wow. Yeah. What yeah, was so. that like? I can't even imagine. I can't <laughs> even imagine a week silent. Sure. Um, it was terrifying at first. Uh, for the first month of the three months, I actually cried every single day. And what I realized was that when I was kind of in my room and I had no computer, no TV, no distractions, no people, what I was faced with was, was my life, was all of the undigested bits um, of my mind and of my heart that I hadn't dealt with since childhood, really. So a lot of that stuff was coming up, and I had to go through it because I was alone. Um, so I really had to face it. So I almost had to become my own therapist in that sense and really just find different strategies to work through everything that came up in me. So it was this really deep purification process of my emotions and of my mind and of my memories. And, um, and then by the second month, I was kind of more balanced. So I decided then to try to do a fast. Um, so I ended up fasting for two weeks. So then I did a two-week fast in the middle of that time um, just to really give my body a full restart and my teacher, who was also a Chinese medicine doctor, he checked on me a few times to make sure it was going well. And then Are you after drinking that, anything during that? I was. So I was drinking a mixture. It's one-third apple juice with two-thirds water. So the kind of joke I was making to myself was that I just felt like I was drinking sour water every day. Um, but it was enough. It was enough to sustain the body for 14 days. And then for the last three days, he suggested that I stop drinking as well to really make a deep, full reset um, of my system. But what also ended up happening was that 
I think I started going into the dying process. So my body and my mind really started to react strongly to that. And, um, and after those three days and I started taking water again, I really, yeah, felt that I was deeply connected to, to the people around the world, actually, who, who don't have enough food, who don't have enough to drink, who have starved to death. Um, because I started just to feel what that, what that feels like, how, how the body and the mind really start to react. Um, so it, it really kind of broke me down on a deeper level in terms of also my connection to humanity and, and my realization to the fragility of this human state. Were you terrified, feeling like you were dying? Um, yes and no. I mean, I could at any point just go and drink water if I wanted to. So on some level, um, there was that kind of security net, but my body was still reacting with terror. It was still a, a real terrified feeling, and, and my mind became, the best way I could describe it, it's as if my mind became mush. It was this feeling that I couldn't really formulate any clear thoughts to make any clear plans. Um, it was really scary also to see that that when you become that weak, when you really start heading towards the dying process, that even all those things that you've learned and all, all those really great you know, insights you've made, they mean nothing. It all kind of just falls apart. And all that really remains is just, what have you embodied? All that really remains is, you know, where is your mind? What have you really um, integrated into yourself? And that was also really a beautiful teaching for me. And were you able to take that teaching and apply it to your life when you left the monastery? Um, that specific teaching, sure, because it really taught me that, you know, it's not about reading books. It's not about listening to talks. It's not about um, saying things that sound meaningful or insightful. It's really about embodying these things. Um, it's really about allowing them to become a part of you. Um, otherwise, it's just kind of mental chatter, right? It's just sitting in your mind as concepts, but it's not really part of your experience. So, so how it, do we go about embodying these? Excuse me, embodying these sure. things. Well, um, I heard actually a really great story, and this is from a rabbi. And this rabbi used to tell his students to place the teachings on their heart. And one day, one of the teachings said to the uh, one of the students said to the rabbi, Rabbi, why do you say place the teachings on our heart and not in our hearts? And the rabbi said, Well, all we can do is place the teachings on our heart, and then it's up to God to break our hearts open for the teaching to finally fall in. And I really thought that was a poignant lesson, because the first step is definitely to to learn these things conceptually to to read, to reflect, to think, to journal, to really process them in your mind. But then actually life, life becomes our biggest teacher. Um, things fall apart. Things don't work uh, the way that we want them to. We're faced with difficulties. And there comes these, these moments, these points in our life when we need to grab onto something. We need help. And when we search for help, what we find is all of these things that we've been learning. And then we really take them down inside of us in a deeper way that they really become a part of us. So ultimately, it's actually life that teaches us. So one of the things that I love is that meditation kind of 
gives us a window into all this or an opportunity to start learning this. But can you explain to our listeners how that happens? You know, most people think, oh, I'm sitting there silently trying to breathe. How do I start learning about life through Mm. sitting? So you're asking, how does meditation correlate to real life? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. So I think most basically, when you focus on your daily experience of life, what it means to be alive, you'll notice that at the core of all of your experiences is actually your mind, is your awareness. So actually all day long, you have an awareness that's underwriting everything that you're experiencing. But because we're so focused outwardly, we're so focused um, on our jobs, on our families, on our taxes, on things that we're afraid of, things that we want, we're so focused in our lives that we're actually never really aware of the most basic part of our experience, which is our awareness. So as you begin meditating, one could say that you seclude yourself from your life. So you come and you sit in a room or in a studio, and then you close your eyes and you seclude yourself also from your senses. So you turn inward and you kind of slowly come to the place of that awareness, of that real kind of basic awareness that's just residing underneath everything. And one could say that it's almost this process of connecting back to the most elemental parts of yourself. And through doing that, A, you kind of start to shift your identification from your daily life, um, you know, tragedies and victories to kind of the spaciousness that, that surrounds and that holds all of that. And it even shifts away that, that your thoughts aren't even so important anymore, that even your feelings, that you stop taking yourself so seriously. And it really creates a spaciousness within you that allows you to respond instead of react in your daily life. Because you realize that none of this is really so important, none of this is really so lasting, that actually it's all very transitory. And that space really allows us to to walk on this earth in a much more open and free way. So, yeah, I think I would say that. I feel more relaxed just hearing that. (laughs) Now, (laughs) I know that you work quite a bit in schools, and I'm wondering if you go into a school and you're working with students or faculty, how would you begin? You know, these are people who perhaps have never meditated before. How would you get them started? Sure. Um, So I work both with student populations and also with teachers and principals and administrators. Um, My approach and both of them are similar in terms of I really keep it on the human level. So I try not to approach students or faculty as some great meditation teacher who's coming in to help you. You know, I'll come in and I'll say hi to everybody, especially when I walk into a classroom, I'll go around and I'll ask everybody their names. And I'll really just make some small talk. I'll see how they're doing and has anybody had any interesting things happen to them today. Um, you know, what do you guys usually talk about in this class? And I really get them engaged and I try to listen to them and see where they're at, you know, what they're they're thinking about, what they're feeling. And then I kind of try to take that and then slowly bring in this thing called called meditation and mindfulness and also how that can really help them and, and if that's even interesting for them. 
And I think with teachers, it's the same way is that you really have to, I think as a, as a spiritual, you know, or someone teaching spiritual things, you really have to remember that, um, that we're trying to benefit people. So the first step is to really look at that person and try to, try to listen to them and sense where they're at, what do they need? Um, I think that a lot of us have had the experiences in the past of people, both religious and also academic and even authoritative um, figures speaking at us, you know, telling us things that maybe is not even really what we want to hear, what really matters to us. Maybe my problem is something completely different. So it's really important to first try to really listen to people and connect to them on a human level and also show them that respect and that you really care about them. And when you do that, that that care and that respect and that listening becomes reciprocated right away. So I've had really great success with groups of students that the teachers say are really difficult. Um, you know, really just sitting and listening and being quiet and very well behaved to the to the astonishment often of the teachers. So I found a lot of success just using the the human element, as I guess I can call it. And do you go in on a regular basis, or do you go in and show them some things and take off? Um, I have had different experiences in schools, so um, mostly I'll go in once a week, or I'll go in once every two weeks, or even once a month. Um, so at the moment, I'm working in some middle schools in, in Woburn, Massachusetts. I go in twice a month. I also teach at MIT once a month. Um, and the way that I kind of go into the, the public schools, I call myself the rent-a-monk. So I kind of come in and I say, you know, I'm here from this time to this time. And teachers kind of rent me out for their block. They say, I want you to come into this block and talk to these kids and, yeah, see if you can support them and see if you can give them anything. Um, And I've been doing a lot of stuff also in health classes recently in middle schools because that seems like it's a natural fit for this kind of work. I think is a natural fit everywhere for this kind of work, (laughs) truthfully. Totally. What do you think about all the meditation apps out there? Um, I think they're great. I think they're well-intended. I personally tried out Headspace just to see, and it was really, it was great. It's really supportive. So I think ultimately, if, if an app supports you, if you feel that you're benefiting from it, then use it and go for it. Um, you know, I don't know if there's anything called a, a good app or a bad app or something that's better. I think really it comes down to the individual and what the relationship is to it. So, you know, generally speaking in the spiritual path or in the, the meditative path or in the path of mindfulness or, or learning or growing, really whatever you find that helps you, go for that. So really um, use your own experience as your guide. So if someone prefers guided meditations versus silent meditations, it's all, it's all good? It is all good. I would say that um, kind of like when you drive with the navigation on versus when you drive just from memory, that there's a bit of a different quality. Same thing as if you go to a yoga class versus doing yoga alone. Um, when you do a guided meditation – it's a really nice way to let somebody else bring you in. And it's a really, um, I think it's a great way to begin to learn. And also, I think there's really something powerful when you start practicing on your own, when you start really integrating um, those, 
th- that guidance into yourself that you can guide yourself, um, that it becomes a self-sufficient kind of device. Because that means that you really also understand the mechanics of it. That means you really start to understand how the meditation works. And that also means you don't rely on anything. You don't rely on your phone or the computer. Um, so I think ultimately when you can really guide yourself, that's, that's really a good place to, to move towards. And is there a certain amount of minutes that we should be working towards? Um, no. So I would really say to leave the whole thing as organic as possible. One of the biggest things that I've noticed when I have started teaching meditation in the West that we bring a lot of our kind of structured um, you know, business mentality to the meditation and that's actually what we need to move away from. Um, the structuredness of our lives is actually often what's causing the problems that we see that you know, we don't really have time just to be present. So I really like taking any kind of, of structure out of the meditation and really letting this be a time just for you to be and to relax. And if you want to just sit for two minutes, that's fine. If you suddenly feel inspired to sit for an hour, that's great. And nothing's really better than anything else. So it's really listening to yourself and just going with what you need. I love that. I think there is so much pressure to do everything right. And I know so many people will say, I'm a bad meditator. And it's it's totally against the whole point. Seth, where can people learn more about you and your wonderful work? Sure. So really basic, um, I have a website that I made. It's called uh, sethmonk.org. So that's just a, a really easy place to look up about me and what I'm doing. I've also created an iTunes podcast channel. So if you go, it's free. And you can go to Seth Monk and also listen to a lot of my talks. And there's guided meditations on there. And also on YouTube, I made a couple guided meditations for people to use that you can just sit at home and use them. Um, and otherwise, I'm really just open for people to contact me through the website if they need any personal guidance or would like me to come and talk to their schools or if they're interested in really, yeah, getting some more information about how all of this works. Wow. It has been so great speaking with you today. I feel like I could talk for three more hours. So many <laughs> questions. Sure. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Yeah. Thank you too. It's been a pleasure. Great. We're going to take a break right now, and after the break, I'm going to have Jackie Bonwell with us, and we're going to be talking about yoga, so stay tuned. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you a busy, stressed, and hungry go-getter who knows what to do to get healthier but has trouble doing it? The problem with popular diets is that they were designed for other people, not you. Sure, they might work for the short term, but for the longer term results, you need a plan designed specifically for your unique body and lifestyle. How about the stress in your life? Do you ever stop and take a deep breath? Do you know what all this stress is doing to your health? Healthy living strategist and author of Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed, Lisa Lutan will get you on your way with coaching, online courses and challenges, and even retreats. You will learn tips and strategies to help you calm down, get healthy, and make you feel and look better than ever. 
For a limited time, Lisa Lutan is offering a free 15-minute breakthrough session to help you get started feeling better right away. Just visit HealthyHappyAndHip.com to get your free 15-minute breakthrough strategy session. That's HealthyHappyAndHip. Yes, you heard it right. HealthyHappyAndHip.com and enter your info in the contact page. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. Feel like sending an email instead? Send it to Lisa at HealthyHappyAndHip.com. Now, back to Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed. Here again is Lisa Lutan. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm so excited for my next guest, Jackie Bonwell. Jackie is a rock star yoga teacher, Reiki master, and owner of the Canton Yoga Shala, where she trains other yoga teachers. Her most important credential and greatest training, however, she says, has been motherhood. I have had the pleasure of seeing Jackie in action, and I can tell you that she has a way of saying exactly what you came to hear that day and truly offering you a mind, body, and spirit experience on your yoga mat. Jackie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm so honored to be on the show, and thank you so much for having me today. Awesome. So, Jackie, I start every guest with my Lisa's five Ask Every Guest questions. Number one, what did you have for breakfast today? Oh, today I had um, I have the same thing every morning. So I have um, a shake, and it has um, wheatgrass and kale, and then so I can drown out the flavor of those. I have pineapple, banana, <laughs> and a little bit of peanut butter um, with almond milk, and that's kind of my fuel to get me going in the morning. Yum! Along how do you spend coffee. the first? <laughs> how do you spend the first hour of your day? Um, the first hour of my day is usually very hectic. I pretty much open my eyes, and then I start scrambling around my house to find all the different things to herd my two kids together to get them out the door and get them to school. So the mornings, you know, with trying to get the, the four of us all out the door are pretty hectic, so I'd like to say that I'm chanting and meditating uh, first thing in the morning, but I'm definitely, I spring right into action. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do for fun? Um, for fun. Um, so I do, you know, I have a lot of things that I do. I mean, I love being outside. I recently got a puppy. And so, um, the puppy is, is only nine months old. So it's, I was laughing saying it's like a baby on steroids. Um, and so I feel like I've spent the past nine months trying to exhaust a lab, (laughs) Um, but it's been really cool. She gets me outside. She makes me step away from work and, um, you know, keeps things really playful. So I never had a pet in my whole life, and uh, mm. she's my, my first dog. So um, that's pretty much been consuming a lot of my time, um, but, you know, really enjoying her while I'm at it. Puppies are so hard. Puppies are hard, is- yeah. I was not prepared. That was definitely, um, I don't know what I was thinking. Um, but, you know, but it has its pros and cons, and the pros are outweighing the cons at this point, and, um, you know, you just have to keep up with her. A tired dog is a good dog. I've come to find that out. 
My daughter's brand new puppy is visiting us right now, so I totally understand what you're talking about. (laughs) So what is the one thing you do every day that has a huge impact on your life? Um, So um, each day I always kind of recommend that you sit um, in what I call sacred acknowledgement. So sometimes I do it in the car. I don't have like a time and a place where I just sit and do it. But I think what's important is each day um, I try to stop and remind myself, um, you know, that no feeling is final and things are temporary and, you know, to try to just sort of remember how big I am. I, I tell all my students that they were the size of a blueberry and they're sitting here now. So I try to each day hook into that bigger side of myself so that I don't get sidetracked by the smaller stressors in my life. So I call it sacred acknowledgement. So I feel like each day just kind of having that sacred acknowledgement, hooking in with, you know, um, a supportive vibration as I move through my day um, has made things much easier. Because sometimes I kind of opt to put the struggle in things that don't really need a struggle. <laughs> so I have to, to kind of pull back a lot and practice a lot to make sure that I'm trying to see the whole picture instead of just one little thing. That's awesome. I love yeah. that. We'll come back to that. My last question is, who inspires you? Oh, God, so many people inspire me. Um, I'm super inspired by... Um, a man that I'm exceptionally good friends with, he is battling cancer for the second time, and he's just doing it so graciously. And his whole first time through treatment, he, you know, he'd get up each day and go to the track, and, um, you know, he just kept busy and kept positive and, you know, got through that round of radiation, and now he's back into looking at rounds of chemo. And his attitude is just really, really good in the face of something really difficult. And so I feel like I'm super inspired by him right now. Um, And I'd say that right now that's probably the inspiration I'm holding closest at this time. But I have a gazillion inspirations. Um, You know, he just happens to be the one that I... I'm drawing energy from right now. He's the lucky one right now that we all can send a little healing energy to. Yeah, thank you. Him and his wife. Um, You know, because it's not easy to be the caretaker either. Yeah. You know. So everybody, let's take a second, send out this man a little bit of love. Now, Jackie, what originally brought you to your yoga mat? Um, well, it's kind of funny. I mean, I, I tell this story a lot because I think it still makes me laugh that I'm even teaching yoga or inner peace to anybody um, because I, my, my whole life was a, that of a social worker in domestic violence, um, and I worked for the state for, you know, about seven years and just a lot of work on children's advocacy, and I saw myself going into probably children's law or probation or something of that nature, um, and I think I, because I kind of have a tendency to go from zero to a thousand with everything, I, um, I burnt myself out pretty much after like a decade of working, you know, just insane hours each week, but really loving what I did, just really stressed out by it. So I um, was on medication for ulcers, and I had, you know, horrific eating patterns because I was always eating on the fly and... Um, and by accident, you know, my only shred of health was this one low-impact aerobics class. So I went to the low-impact aerobics class, um, and it happened to be, I had the wrong day, and it happened to be a yoga class. And the teacher said, well, you're here. You might as well take it. 
And I was actually kind of bummed because I really liked the low-impact class. <laughs> so by accident, you know, it was sort of by accident, you know, or wink, wink, by accident, I ended up in um, this lovely woman's yoga class. And it was the first time that I felt like the rest of my stressors, which were really heavy at that point, were at arm's length. And that I had a space to just kind of regroup. I mean, I would leave class and then I'd turn back into a holy hot mess. But <laughs> but I had this little window of yoga. And so I just kept going. And I wasn't really even any good at it. I was super overweight. I smoked cigarettes. I had zero business even being in there. But I just kept going for whatever reason. Something just kept propelling me to go and go and go. And I just started to develop a fascination um, because I, do, I love to study things. I love to get into the real intricacies of learning something, um, you know, 100%. I like, I like having a skill. I like having a trade. Um, and I'm a huge, I'm a student always. You know, I don't even consider myself a teacher sometimes. I just think I'm the loudest student talking. <laughs> um, so I just kind of fell into it in any event and just decided to study it a little bit further and I would go into the energy of social work and it was really draining and it was exceptionally difficult. It had beautiful moments, but it was getting really hard for me. I was kind of swimming against my own tide. I was like the legal guardian of like 14 kids in the state at one point. Um, so, you know, it's a pretty heavy responsibility. And so I just kind of crashed and burned, and then I eventually um, made the decision to leave and just started hoofing it with yoga, started teaching like 20 classes a week. Um, I initially went into real estate, but I was horrible at it. Um, I thought it would be great because I love people, but man, they really hustle. I have a whole new respect for real estate agents. I did it for eight <laughs> months, and I didn't make one dollar. So I thought, oh, yeah. okay, well, then yoga is my calling. So I just started teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching and here I am today, you know, like something like 12 years later. And when you originally got into yoga, did it just clear your mind? You know, some people say, oh, I just get into that Zen place. Other people like the whole time I'm thinking about what do I have to do. You know, what was it for you? Um, you know, I think the first six months of my practice was like the honeymoon um, you know, I got in there, it was peaceful, it was quiet, it was lovely music, you're hearing these things for the first time. I was so disconnected from my body. Um, you know, I was overweight, so I was actually kind of ashamed of my body, you know, and so I think just to start a healthy negotiation with myself, um, you know, and to enjoy going in and feeling relaxed and being with, you know, like-minded people who weren't swearing or <laughs> dysfunctional, I'm sure they were, but they weren't in the yoga class, but... <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think I just um, made the, you know, I had to just kind of stay with what I was, you know, I, I would go in there and, you know, I would feel all these great feelings. And then, you know, once you really kind of break through and you start really getting into this practice and it takes a look at the habits and the patterns that hold you back from true peace and it starts to go a little bit beyond the physical, which might have gotten you in the door, then you really start to look at energetic and emotional. I think it takes a lot of courage to do that. You start to cut yourself back to the root, and that's not always a pretty picture. So I feel like I had a great first six months. It really hooked me in. And then, you know, I did a lot of emotional work on my mat and a lot of self-forgiveness and a lot of, you know, replacing anger with compassion and, you know, all the different steps on a spiritual journey. And um, so I think it got kind of ugly at times, but... I went initially, you know, for the peace and the strength that I didn't feel like I had. 
I love that you said that because it kind of answers my next question, but we'll go into a little more because I think there's a lot of yoga confusion out there. You know, some people think of it as a workout, you know, power yoga. Some people think of it as a way to get flexible and other people look at it as a way to get you know, spiritually awakened. So how how do we kind of, or is it emerging of that? Is it that we go to different types of classes for that? How do you um, look at that? Any class is going to do that. So what's cool about yoga is if you went to a, if you went to a power class, if you went to a kundalini class, if you went to, you know, any, any style of yoga is going to do the same thing. When you move your body, because, you're, because your biography becomes your biology, um, that's the words of Carolyn Miss, because your biography becomes your biology. When you manipulate your biology and you move yourself or you breathe long diaphragmatic breathing and you're affecting soft tissue, then you can't help but promote emotional alignment. So even if a teacher never pointed out that great mental and emotional alignment are happening on your mat, they're happening in that you're moving, in that you're breathing, in that you're concentrating, and you're balancing out the wiring that gives out all this different stress and energy to your life. So I don't really get too hopped up in what this style does or that style. I probably used to just trying to understand the differences between them. But I feel like they're all kind of coming at the same thing, just a little bit of a different angle. And so many things are happening on the mat that are unspoken. It's just kind of what the teacher, the angle the teacher chooses to take. Now, some teachers, and I remember I took your class, and the thing that really impacted me was your language. It was more, you know, than motions. That's what I really remember. And some teachers have no language. So I'm wondering, is that something that you teach to your students when you're teaching yoga teachers, or is that an individual stylistic thing? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I, I do unique things with my teachers to try to help them um, come up with, you know, really sort of the feeling of the practice and becoming more, not from a place of knowledge, but a place of wisdom. And I think the difference between knowledge and wisdom is the time you sit with something. And I give my teachers assignments to kind of sit in the poses and say, okay, beyond, for example, down dog. Um, We know it's going to balance out your hamstrings. We know it's going to take some pressure off your lower back. We know it's going to help with stabilizing shoulder joints and uh, strengthening the arches of your hands and all these other physical things, and those are great. Um, But we also know that, you know, it's... um, Spiritually, you know, for some people, down dog is a time where they regroup. Some people, it's a time where they work through something that's really uncomfortable. So it's a different teaching to whoever does their, you know, their, their down dog. They're kind of learning something different from it spiritually, physically, and mentally. And so I encourage my teachers to kind of sit in the wisdom of the practice so that their words and their language are really coming from an authentic place. That you take their class, because we're all teaching the same thing, and it's when somebody looks at your name on the schedule and says, I want to take her class or his class. It's because they're going because of the way that the teacher is making them feel. And you can't really portray feeling if you haven't really felt it. So I spend a lot of yeah. time doing like kinesthetic work, the real feeling work with my teachers so that they're coming from that raw, authentic um, language and place. That's so powerful. I love hearing that because I think a lot of people who go to yoga, you know, or thinking about yoga, just think, oh, I'm going to move my body in poses. So maybe talk more about that. Like what, what do people learn? I mean, I've heard it's so transformational going through yoga teacher training, but what other things are touched upon when someone's going on that journey? Oh my God, so many things. So, you know, first of all, you know, phenomenal 
phenomenal physical alignment is reviewed in the course. Um, Johnny Gillespie, part of the Balanced Athlete Program, the founder of it, and one of my you know, top teachers, dear, dear friend of mine, he comes in and teaches and puts them through the Balanced Athlete Alignment and really teaches the teachers about functional movement. Um, and that's not something that's typically been included in a lot of yoga courses, and so to, to have kind of a, um, having that be much more present um, is really cool because I didn't really know a lot about it either. So um, you get tremendous education and functional um, movement as well as alignment. Um, then we move on to the intricacies of history and philosophy, which are so dense and so beautiful and so ancient, and there's so many that it's really hard to kind of just like read a book and understand it. So you can really get into the intricacies of history and philosophy. And the philosophy is really beautiful. You know, yoga feels like it's just a compliment to whatever you believe. It kind of comes in like your best friend. You know, it just wants for you to live the rest of your days with freedom. It really has no agenda. Um, you know, so I think, you know, I think exploring things like that as well as exploring the intricacies of your brain, I think if people really understood the wiring of their brain, they'd have much more compassion for themselves and much more tolerance of other people. I think we would understand why it's easy for other people to be negative. Um, it would be easy to understand why people self-sabotage because the odds are kind of stacked against us sometimes within our wiring. So to learn how to negotiate with your wiring, just separate from teaching anybody, just, just living life yourself, is a really powerful thing to educate yourself about um, because it's going to help you to live your life with way more harmony and peace. And people How? go, you know, why is inner peace so important? It's like, well, 98% of all illness is stress-related. You know, and when you're How in pain... How do we negotiate with our wiring? I'm intrigued. Yeah, so, for example, um, if you and I were standing in a room of 50 people that were smiling, and there was one person who wasn't smiling, because your brain operates a lot in survival mode, it's going to take note of that one person. And it's going to dismiss the other 49 people that are smiling. And it's going Why to do we do that? on that to try to help you and protect you. So even though, you know, you'll be talking about other things and you'll be looking around and you'll be lecturing or whatever you do, you still will be very much aware that there is um, something to watch for in the corner. So when we have a negative thought or we have a negative experience, we have to practice matching that with like five. Some people have actually said ten, but I, I just say five. <laughs> I think five is good. Five really positive things that you have to bring into the picture to balance out the amount of energy your brain wants to give that negative thing. So I think Jackie, we can understand that it's much stuff. easier to complain. It's much easier to focus on the stressors than the blessings, and it takes practice to focus on what's going right. So when we, I love this, love, love, love this, because this can apply to so many people's lives. So when we see that one negative person in the big room, we turn and we focus on the five positives in order um, to no. negate so, that? Am I example, missing it? Like, for example, you give, you have the 40 people, you have the 50 people in there, you have the one that, you know, that you're aware of in the corner who does not look happy at all, or, you know, is not, is not giving off the same feedback as the others. And so what happens is after the, after the talk is over or something, if you're so hung up on, you know, that, 
guy or that woman, you know, who was there, and clearly they didn't like it. It's, your brain will kind of go in that negative direction um, because that's the way that you're wired, and it's, that's important, you know, to wire you for survival. But sometimes we just throw way more onto the pile. So afterwards, you know, if you're kind of focusing on the negative to make sure that you're bringing in the positive. Or sometimes if I see somebody and they're, I feel like maybe they're giving me a look or they don't understand because I lecture to, like, very big groups. So if I took everything personally, I'd never talk again. <laughs> um, you know, so I just say to myself real quickly, that must be an introvert. Because sometimes introverts, they're actually feeling a different way than their face is portraying. So that I try to, like, do a little bit of trickery, you know, with my brain so that it doesn't feel like I'm under threat. So cool. I, I had a really funny experience that I'll share with you. Uh, years ago, I was teaching this crazy empowerment dance class. And there was this one woman in the room, and she was bringing me down. Like, she was so mad. She had the worst energy. And the whole class, I'm just going, oh, my God, like, what did I do wrong? You know, all those things we do. And at the end of the class, I went over to her and I said, just, you know, checking in, are you okay? She's like, oh, yeah, I was really mad. But then I threw him in the fire and all is good. And I realized it was all about about her ex-husband. And it was nothing to do with me or the class. And it's always such a good reminder. You know, there's so many things going on. And that's the thing is there's there's, um, Caroline Miss, who's like, I, I love her work. She says, we're all walking history books. So it's like I come at you with all my wiring. You come at me with all your wiring, and we're trying to, like, find commonplace, you know. And if we don't, sometimes, you know, it makes us drift apart or feel like we don't have that connection. So I think, you know, I think that the more tolerant and loving that we can be towards each other, um, I say it really in the interest of your health, not just to sing kumbaya and have a peaceful, hippie world. I mean, I think... You know, that's nice, but I really, you know, I really want for people to appreciate this gift of life and live the rest of their breaths, you know, in, in, in freedom. I mean, this is silly. The amount of stress we throw onto things is silly. It is silly. So when we walk into a yoga class, like what's the best way, the best attitude we can go in with and, and what should we be keeping in mind during that time? That's a really good question. You know, everybody goes and they're driven there by personal reasons. And um, I think what's a really nice shift sometimes when it comes to yoga is I think it's viewed a lot as relaxation, which it definitely is. But sometimes it's like a snow globe effect where you shake everything up and then you put it down and then everything kind of settles down. So I've been trying to see the practice a little bit more like a cup of coffee. You know, that if I just start moving, that it will just start to wake up dormant patience and dormant energy and dormant strength and um, dormant wherewithal. And, you know, some to see it more as conjuring up resources and getting your brain and your heart and your nervous system organized so that you can face the rest of your day. And it's actually pretty selfless. You know, if I practice or if I meditate, half the time it's not even necessarily for me. I know it helps me, but it's that I have patience with my family that I have patience and energy for my work or things that I'm not expecting so they don't derail me. I'm not always walking around at maximum capacity. And when I am and I fall on my face, I have the self-compassion to try to turn my ship around a little sooner. So I think when you go in there just to say, you know what, I'm doing something about it and this is going to help me. And whether we lie down or we move or we jump up and down or we squat or whatever, there isn't anything that you're not doing in a yoga class that is not in the interest of total upliftment on multiple levels. 
So interesting, and so many people are going. I'm just going to go in and do some chaturangas, you know. <laughs> but right. it really is. It's it's self compassion and being a kinder person in the world, and right. it's so beautiful to look at it like that. Yeah, I didn't always, you know. But I I've always loved people. So and I always have believed in people. It was so funny. I just said that to somebody yesterday morning. She goes, "Really? I hate them." (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, clearly people love you. So, Jackie, tell our audience how they can learn more about you. Um, So, I have a studio in Canton, but I primarily do the training. So, I do the two hundred hour, and I do the three hundred hour teacher training, and that's at my own studio. But then I also go around to other trainings and teach in their trainings, and I might do certain segments on history, on teaching, on, you know, alignment, or, you know, any any subject they need me to cover for their particular training or they want me to cover, and then they go around like a gypsy to all different studios, because I have a bunch of different communities that I've taught in over the past 12 years that I love to go and visit, so every few months I'll go and do a chakra cleanse, which is like my my baby, my baby class, um, or a sutra bowl, or like, you know, go and do an an old school workshop, you know, in these places that I get to go around and visit. And I remember bumping into a Kripalu, too, last time. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, I was going to say, so I have, um, I started going to Kripalu a few years ago, and last fall, for the first time, I ran a a week-long there called Warriors and Yinjas. And I run it with another, with a yin wizard, Sajel Erlocker from Portland, Maine. And her and I are going to do it again. They asked us to come back. So we're coming at the end of, um, at the end of September, from September 25th to the 29th. We'll be doing Warriors and Yinjas again at Kripalu. And then I, I always go there the first weekend in uh, February and do um, either energetic liberation or full body prayer. We didn't decide on which one just yet, but um, but I love it up there. It's a great way to just step off the grid, to just be, you know, to be fed and nurtured, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally. I'm so excited. I'm going to be presenting there for the first time in October, October 27th. <gasps> Good girl. Woohoo. Oh, anyway, Jackie, awesome. it has been so great having you on the show. It went way too fast. Too much yeah, more to talk so about. Thank you so much for my Delilah moment. You made my day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, so happy. Yeah, thank um, you very much. So oh, if anybody I'll ever wanted to check anything out, it, my website is just my name, JackieBonwell.com, and everything's on there. Well, spell out Jackie for them because it's, yeah, an it's a little spelling. different. So J-A-C-Q-U-I-B-O-N-W-E-L-L, JackieBonwell.com. Great. Listeners, it's been an awesome having you Send me a note. Come visit me at healthyhappyandhip.com. Let me know what you liked about today's show. Let me know what you'd like for future shows. And I hope you have a wonderful, beautiful day. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode on busy, stressed, and food obsessed. Did you get some great ideas from today's show? Join Lisa Lutan again next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a great week. 